Welcome to Protecting Our Freedoms podcast. I am your host, Joy Vacherbeck, and this is my co-host, Mark Renahan. Thank you and very much. You're welcome, Mark. And today this is the first in our special four-part series on remembering 9-11 20 years later. Absolutely. Mark. Well, as all of you are aware, 20 years ago on that fateful day, uh, the United States and the world was uh, changed forever by the 9-11 terrorist attacks in New York City. Uh, and today we are starting our four-part series. Now, when anyone thinks of September 11th um, and the tragedy that befell all of us, I know one of the first things that comes to my mind is the New York Fire Department and the New York Police Department. So to start off our series, today we have with us retired Detective Sergeant Jerry Kane. And that fateful day, Jerry was downtown in New York City, and he is going to just tell us all about his day and uh, some events afterwards. So without any further ado, I'd like to introduce Jerry. Jerry, how are you, sir? I'm doing good. Thanks for uh, having me as a guest. I appreciate it. Oh, no, Jerry, we appreciate it. I, I can't imagine this this week must bring back, uh, you know, both emotions and just, I, I don't even want to know what. But I, I wanted to just start off with maybe you could tell the folks, you know, what your job was prior to September 11th with the NYPD. Sure. Uh, back then, uh, I was a sergeant. And I was assigned to the staff of uh, Police Commissioner Bernie Carrick. Uh, I did two things for Commissioner Carrick. I went to every major incident in the city, which, frankly, was a lot of fun. I was running around the city lights and sirens all day and night and reporting back to him uh, what was going on. And uh, I would handle visiting law enforcement dignitaries for him. So if some chief came in from, say, Chicago or L.A. or someplace like that, I'd usually pick that person up and bring him right to the office to meet with the commissioner. Uh, it was a pretty cool gig. Uh, uh, it was the only time I ever worked in headquarters. I was always out in the field. Uh, so it really wasn't an administrative job. I still got to go out in the street and play around and play cops or robbers a little bit, and which is why I became a cop in the first place. So uh, uh, I can't remember why I worked late the night before, but I worked late the night before. Uh, and, you know, I'm sure there was a homicide or a fire or something that I had to go to and check out for him. Uh, in any event, uh, the next day I decided just on my own to work a 10 to six instead of an eight to four. Uh, I didn't have to ask anybody. And uh, I live in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. Uh, I don't know how many of your viewers and listeners would know where that is. Uh, it's uh, the neighborhood where Saturday night fever was based many <laughs> years ago, but it's uh, if you know, New York city, it's the, the Brooklyn side of the Verrazano bridge. And we're maybe six miles from uh, the World Trade Center. I had to take home on my car with lights of sirens in it. And uh, at 8.45 in the morning, uh, Pete Frischer, who was a detective that worked with me, uh, hits me on a Nextel and says, there's a huge explosion at the World Trade Center, and he'll meet me there. He was at headquarters and saw it from the window of one police plaza. So what was your first thought? Uh, I put, I, I was in my bedroom. I put the TV on and I, uh, uh, some news station I was, you know, some TV station I was watching took like a traffic ca camera and like panned it over. So it wasn't a really good shot. It was a distant shot. Uh, you know, I had a big hole. I thought a general aviation plane, like a lot of people, right. Uh, hit it. So I was still going to, uh, do the three S's, which is poop, shower, and shave. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I'd been a, a detective squad commander before I took this job with uh, Commissioner Carrick. I had gotten those calls in the middle of the night. There's a double homicide. There's an officer-involved shooting. Something big has happened. 
and you know you 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 clean yourself up, you shave, you brush your teeth, you put your clothes on, you go in, right? Yeah, and then you you organize your thoughts. And I hadn't showered yet, so I was like, you know, uh, it's going to be a long day. I should just do this. And then John Miller, who's currently the deputy commissioner for counterterrorism for the NYPD, but back then he was a reporter for ABC News. Uh, he famously interviewed Osama bin Laden in the cave, like in 1997 or something. Uh, John called me up, and John knows everybody and knows everything. Uh, he really does. I mean, he's the most wired-in person I've ever met in my life. And he calls me, and he says, Jerry, what's going on? And I'm like, John, I don't know, but I'm going to find out. And I decided just to put some deodorant on, and, you know, I put on, and I looked, and I was like, man, this is going to be a, a long day. So I put on a suit I didn't like because I had a feeling my suit would get ruined, a shirt I didn't like, and a tie I didn't like. And uh, I go downstairs. My wife hands me a cup of coffee and a bagel. And I get in my car and I take off like a bat out of hell. And uh, people are moving out of my way, which is like really shocking in New York. Uh, they don't move for you know police cars. <laughs> and uh, I'm I realized I couldn't handle the coffee and the bagels. So I just chucked them out the window on the highway. I fell in behind a uh, small fire truck from Rescue Five on Staten Island. I followed them all the way in on the BQE. I'm on the BQE. And I, I'm listening to the, the, the AM news radio station and I'm listening to the police radio. And already the AM news radio station is saying a plane has been hijacked out of Boston. And I'm like, okay, everybody in the world now knows where that plane is. It's, it's here. And uh, uh, just then some guys on the radio start screaming, silver plane, screaming, silver plane, explosion. Oh my God. And I'm like, you know, great guy. You know, we're 10 minutes into this, 15 minutes into this. And he's giving like an update uh, of what's of what's happening, right? Now I can see the towers as I'm driving, but I'm not looking at them. I'm looking at like the ten feet that's like right in front of my car because I'm driving like there's no tomorrow. And uh, another cop gets on real calm and he says, "Central, central, another plane just hit the other tower." Oh. So I look out into the distance and I can, I didn't see the ball of flame going up, but now it was just like roiling smoke, just like making like circles just going up. And the other amazing part about that site was there were probably a million pieces of paper, like 5,000, it was everywhere, and like uh, like sparkling, because it was a beautiful day. It was the most beautiful day ever. It was no humidity, not a cloud in the sky. And as the papers fell, they kind of twinkled. It's just a weird sight that I'll never forget. Uh, just then, uh, I uh, hear the chief of department, this guy, Joe Esposito. Uh, uh, by the way, so far, I, I'm going to say, as, as I name names, I'll tell you if they lived or died. John Miller lived. Pete Frisch lived. Uh, Joe Esposito lived. Joe Esposito was a four-star chief for our job. He gets uh, at the NYPD as a command and control center called operations. He gets on the radio and he says, Central have operations notify the Pentagon. The city is under attack. And I will tell you, I literally looked at the radio like I couldn't believe the words just came out. I mean, like a lot of cops, I've gone to those jobs, car chases and guys screaming at their shootout and all the kinds of crazy emergency things that will come over the radio. You know, I've been to all those things uh, to, to hear your chief saying that we're at war, uh, like real war uh, is like it was pretty you know, uh, sobering. So uh ended up going up 
the BQE, the Gowanus Expressway, as it's sometimes called, and went through the uh, the Battery Tunnel into Lower Manhattan. Uh, I dropped my car off. Uh, I kind of always park my car cockeyed. I don't know why that is, like a <laughs> psychological crutch. But afterwards, it was easy to find my car when every car was covered in dust. At the end of the day, I saw my car. It was the one that was parked a little funny. Everybody else had their cars parked like very neatly, like they were all in the Marine Corps boot camp or something. <laughs> uh, so I get there, and uh, uh, both buildings are hit. Uh, I go, I go. The first thing, I, place I go by is the Marriott Downtown Hotel. There were two Marriott hotels that were significantly impacted. The Marriott Downtown survived and is still there. There's a jet engine sitting right in front of the front door of the place, like uh, not in front of the front door, like in the 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 the, the parking lane of the street, like I was a cab pulling up the to pick take a guest yeah. to the airport. And there's two rookie cops standing there, and I got my number one my best sergeant voice on and i'm like this is evidence don't you leave this until you're relieved by a detective or an fbi agent i'm sergeant kane i'm ordering you and they're like yes sir yes sir and uh i go into the hotel you know not even thinking that the buildings were going to come down and i, I talked to a manager and i'm like listen you guys got to be prepared to feed the firefighters all night and all day I said, I don't know. Someone will pay you. I kept on my business card. I'm like throwing my business card around that day, like uh, it was a American Express black card. <laughs> and I'm like, you'll get paid. You know, never thinking the buildings were coming down. Mm. I go now. It's another block or two north, and I'm standing right between the two towers, right in front of the Marriott uh, World Trade Center, which was totally destroyed. And I'm going to go in and speak to a fellow by the name of George uh, Compos, Compos King Compos. Uh, he's Greek, uh, uh, Greek guy, uh, retired police sergeant from the Port Authority Police Department. Uh, and I knew him through a friend. And I was going to offer him any help that, you know, the police department can help. And just then a, a deputy commissioner came along. I won't name this guy. He did live. Uh, uh, he was definitely having a panic attack at this moment. And, you know, and I don't blame him, by the way. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, you can't blame anyone at that point, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the jet fighters have showed up and they're screaming overhead. And as I said to you guys before on a call, uh, when the Air Force shows up for real, I, I've been to air shows. I've taken everybody's taking their kids to an air show. Mm-hmm. This was 100% different. I mean, this was. This wasn't the Blue Angels flying around to show off. This was, they were there for business. Right. They were there for business 100%. And uh, uh, they came screaming overhead. It, Frankly, though, it was a good feeling. I knew no more planes were going to crash into us now because those guys had that part covered. Mm-hmm. Uh, the most distressing thing, of course, was watching uh, the people jump and, mm. and land on West Street. Uh, it was intense. Uh, I will say I was struck by uh, this one observation I made. There were two types of people that jumped. There were the type of people that jumped... And they would jump into their death, and they knew it. And they kind of fell freely, if that, like, at you know, without a lot of movement, just falling to their death. They'd almost kind of uh, been comfortable with their fate and said, "This is it." And yes, out. sir, yeah. exactly. And the other type, you could tell that this was some kind of survival plan, almost like they were trying to fly their way over to the roof of another building, mm. which I'm sure, if you're on the top of World Trade Center, it looks like it's doable because you're so high. Uh, uh, of course, all those people, uh, 
the one thing I, it, is that they didn't suffer. There was no pain because they were dead instantaneously when they struck the ground. But I'm mm-hmm. sure that was, you know, six, seven seconds of terror that I would, you Not know. Not want to. And just having yeah. to watch it, Jerry, when you're there, mm-hmm. I mean, that must have been, I, I can't imagine. Like you say, you got the, the planes overhead, you know, the, the fire's raging. You're on the ground. You're still trying to be a sergeant and a cop and bark orders, and then there's people falling out of the building. So not uh-huh. to interrupt you, but, I mean, I, I, like you and I were just talking about earlier, it's almost like the brain isn't meant to take in so much at once. But it, it isn't. And I'll, I'll tell you what else was on my mind. I, uh, my wife and I had our wedding reception at Windows on the World, which was the restaurant on the top of the North Tower. Oh, wow. and, uh, uh, we went there every year on our wedding anniversary. And it was expensive, by the way, but it was, you know, it was pretty cool, right? Yeah, and, exactly. uh, uh I actually thought that the buildings would be closed for about six or seven years to be repaired. And I was like thinking to myself, wow, when I come back here, how am I going to make believe that I didn't see the things that I mm-hmm. am seeing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, never thinking a building was going to come down. So uh, I didn't go in. I ended up not going in and seeing George in the hotel. And George made it out by the skin of his teeth. Uh, like barely made it. He was in there when the building, when the first building crashed all over the hotel. He made it out with just a minute or two to spare before the next building came down. It was a pretty harrowing escape, guarded by some hero firefighters, uh, who then, when these firefighters got George and a couple of guests out of the hotel, they went right back in to look for other people. And then the North Tower came, the South, then the North Tower came down. I'm sure they didn't make it. And, and you know, it was it was a haunting story when George told me the story. But if I had gone in there and changed his day by 15 seconds or 20 seconds, who knows if he makes it or not. I mean, maybe he does, but maybe he doesn't. I'm telling you the difference between life and death that day was if you made a right or a left. It's just you stopped for 10 seconds or you didn't stop. That's how close. Literally, it's amazing to me that only 3,000 people died, frankly. It could have been It could have been much, much more. So oh, uh, I find a police commissioner and... Uh, uh, my friend, uh, Chris Rising, who's an inspector in the police commissioner's office, great guy, uh, says, uh, Jerry, uh, the mayor needs to speak to Barry Morn. Barry Morn, uh, a Bostonian, Mark, uh, uh, is the head of the FBI office in New York City, and that is the biggest FBI office in America. And obviously, the mayor wants to know what the feds have to say about all this, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, I go find where the FBI are rallying up. And I get delayed by a guy named Dally, Danny, Danny Calamine, who's a detective from the NYPD, but he works. Uh, we've assigned him to work over t- with the FBI because he's that good a detective. And Danny uh, is trying to talk me to uh, uh, grabbing this guy, Kenny Maxwell, who's the number two guy in the New York office. And I'm like, no, 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 the mayor wants Barry Moore. And I'm not bringing him Kenny Maxwell. And uh, Danny delayed me like 30 seconds. That probably saves my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that... That probably saves my life. That's a big part of why I'm here. So I go jogging down south on Church Street. I'm pretty close to the South Tower. Uh, The South Tower did not have people jumping from it, but it did have debris coming off of it because it was so violently damaged. And uh, I was trying to figure out how I was going to enter it. And uh, I am about to, like, make a run for it. And there's this vibration sound and I look literally my view is looking straight up and uh, I was probably 150 feet from the base. It's a 1500 foot building and uh, it starts coming down and I'm like, Holy shit. Right. I am 
in a in a very 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 bad place and i know it mm. i thought i had like a second i really did so i ran like about 100 feet and i got behind this thing called an rep which is uh uh like an ambulance sized nypd vehicle and i get behind the rep and now i knew because it's like one mississippi two mississippi three mississippi and i'm like oh man i should have just kept running but this is it. I mean, I, uh, this is the decision I made. And I, I, I can't leave now. I don't want to go out into open, open ground, so to speak, now and, and get hit by something, right? At least this gives me some protection, right? And uh, the truck got busted up pretty bad. So it, I'm sure it, it protected me from – I mean, there, was some, there were chunks of concrete. There were size of softballs. There were pieces of aluminum and steel and all kinds of things coming down. Uh, so as I told you guys before – uh, it literally was the loudest sound you'll ever hear in your life. I mean, there's just nothing you'll never, uh, you can live to be 300 years old. You will never ever hear anything this loud in your life. And there was this hundred foot wave of dust. that just like came at us at about 30 miles an hour and overwhelmed us. Mm-hmm. And, and so I held my breath and I covered my face with my hands and, uh, uh, then it was complete and absolute silence. And I'm, I'm not kidding you. It was the quietest quiet I've ever experienced. In, in, a, in a span of 15 seconds, the loudest noise I've ever heard, the quietest quiet I've ever heard. And uh, uh, so it was time for me to take a breath. I, uh, you know, this is, I wasn't prepared to like quick hold my breath like when you jump in a pool or something. So I took a breath and it, the dust was like, like flour. That's how fine it was. And it went in and clogged my throat. And I, I just had a reflex. I did like a second breath and I got even more dust down my throat. And it was all, it was all clogged up down there. So I was, you know, I was choking to death. So I did bang. It's like the guy on the right of me and the guy on the left of me. And uh, I just decided to, I, I mean, I, I was getting no air. I could feel it. My hands were feeling weak. I was feeling a little funny uh and i just decided to die with dignity so i I kneeled on the ground just and i was gonna lay on it i was just gonna lay there like in a fetal position just die and uh i got real calm and uh i was like you know i wasn't dead yet so i just started hacking hacking gagging coughing as much as i could like really violently and it hurt a little bit and i I got this, this crap out spit it out of my mouth took my suit jacket actually grabbed it from the back like back of my collar and pulled it over my head this way because i knew that the inside of my jacket wouldn't have dust on it because it was Mm -hmm. against my body and i wrapped it around my face and i knew that the truck was pointed south and that way was north and i'm just going to go north and uh, get out of here so i crawled a block uh, give or take maybe a little more maybe a little less uh i'd have to go back and look at probably a little more than a block and i got on my feet and i'm kind of stumbling forward carefully trying not to trip not to step on anybody and i and i got to the side of saint peter's church which is on a uh, barclay and church street and it uh it takes up about most of the block between barclay and vz on church and that's uh this actually the side of the church you go into the church on barclay and uh i grabbed the uh i grabbed the fence and i'm like walking along the fence line and uh, I get to the corner and there's like uh, four or five people in the church, uh, four adults and a, and a high school kid named Jonathan Stewart. Jonathan is alive. Jonathan lives up uh, in southern New Hampshire now. And uh, I get up there 
I get there and they see me because the dust is starting to settle. I don't realize that because I got this jacket wrapped around my head and nobody makes a move for me. So Jonathan comes out and he says, he grabs me by the wrist. He says, yo, man, you can't be out here. And I said, yeah, no shit. No one could be out here. <laughs> wow. uh, he takes me up the steps. The steps are actually pretty steep. They probably wouldn't be the code uh, n- nowadays. <laughs> and uh, uh, I go, where are we going? He goes, it's a church. And I go, is it a Catholic church? And he goes, I don't know. And I'm like, and I didn't care, actually. Uh, I needed water. And so I, I can't see. Uh, even with that, the jacket around my head, I got the dust is all in my eyes. I feel the wall and I feel the holy water. So I take a mouthful and I put it in my mouth, I goggle spit. I take another mouthful, goggle spit. I take a, a handful in one eye, a handful in the other eye. And uh, I do bless myself with it. And I'm like, so uh, this is like, this is kind of funny, but this was my thought process. The church, it's a beautiful church. If you ever get a chance to go there, St. Peter's Catholic Church is the oldest parish in New York City. Uh, it's beautiful. And uh, you have this near-death experience and you're in a church and you're like, you know, is this it? Yeah, because this is how it works. And uh, I thought 10,000 people had died and I'm in a church now, there's six of us. And I'm like, well, six if 10,000 people died, six people are going to heaven. Uh, there's no way I'm ever part of that six. So uh, 6,000, like I said to you guys earlier, who's 6,000, I could probably get make the back of that line. Make I the cut, yeah. Six. But six, so, you're not making the cut. I got you. Yeah, no, no way, right? So, uh, so uh, uh, I did what I got called. But actually, this, uh, as I told you before, this medic takes my blood pressure. It's like two something over 170. Uh, and he tells me I have to go to the hospital because I'm going to have a stroke. And I'm like, dude, you see what's going on out there? I, 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 I don't, I got work to do. So I start doing what a police sergeant does, which is telling people what to do, even if they don't want to hear it, you know? And uh, I had able-bodied men uh, not going further than 50 feet from the church because I knew that the other tower was still up. And we were close to it, by the way. We were not out of danger. And I didn't want anybody to get caught out there in a building collapse. Uh, I had a nurse and a paramedic. I put the nurse in charge. And I told them, you know, you guys are, you know, we don't know when help is coming. So make whatever medical decision you can, you know, some kind of morals and ethics and just do whatever you have to do. Me and... uh, uh, Jonathan. Jonathan Stewart is uh, the high school kid. He's now, you know, grown man living in New Hampshire. He's a social worker. Uh, I love that you still know about him and where he is yeah, and everything. Yeah. By the way, yeah, That's oh, he's a great guy. Uh, got his master's degree. Served in the United States Navy after mm-hmm. high school. He was a submariner uh, or submariner. How do they pronounce that? Whatever. He worked on submarines. Uh, wonderful person. We're still friends. Uh, so me and John go to the front of the church and i knew where the sacristy would be i was an older boy when i was a kid all the churches are laid out the same pretty much uh i find the sacristy and what was in there i knew exactly what was going to be in there there's chalices in there there's flower vases there's a big there's two big sinks and bam we get both sinks going full blast of cold water uh i'm filling everything i can with water people coming up to the altar people drink it out of big flower vases pouring it all over their head mm. drink it out of, out of chalices actually drinking water out of chalices whatever it takes and uh uh i had a knife on me and uh, i said take the cloth off the altar and we'll cut it to strips we'll soak it in water give it the tie around people's faces it'll give them some protection against all that dust out there it's not perfect but it's something so when it ran out he goes what should i do i go cut the cut the priest's vests they're hanging right there in the closet he goes i can't do that i go john 
it's okay. I'm an old, old boy. You can do it. <laughs> so, uh, uh, when it came time to cut the next set of vestments, there was this guy there, a businessman. He was in a suit. I assume he was a businessman. And you could talk to other people that were down there. Uh, the universal color in downtown Manhattan was just concrete gray because uh, of all the concrete dust. You know, millions and millions and millions and millions of pounds of concrete dust. It was just pulverized. And uh, this guy was completely gray. He was like a gray person. And he had some blood. I can't remember where. If it was from his nose, his mouth, his ear, eye. Uh, you know, not a lot, just a little. I remember because it was just the only other color on him besides gray. And uh, uh, John went to cut the vestment. And uh, the guy's like, no, no, no. And and I'm always, you know, I wish I knew who this guy was and I could I could give him the props he deserves because uh, 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 he needed physical uh, comforting this guy. And, uh, and yet there was a moral line that he didn't want crossed to give him comfort. And, that, and John was about to cross that moral line for this guy. So I knew I had to get that guy across the line. So I said to him, I decided to up my rank a little bit. I told him I was a retired altar boy. because that <laughs> sounded more official. And, uh, and I just decided that until I was usurped, I was the ranking Catholic authority in that church. Until someone came Bishop Kane had arrived. No longer Sergeant Kane. Bishop Kane yeah. had arrived. I might, you know, it does bother me a little bit that I'm going to have to meet St. Peter one day and he might approve or disapprove. My of you chopping it. Yeah, no, it's, it's Jerry. It's funny because I, I was talking to some of my neighbors and I, I live down here in Florida now. And, uh, you know, a few, my neighbors are a little older than me, but all super nice people. And I was telling them the story uh, about the, you know, the 9-11 podcast coming up. And I, I began telling the story of you and, and, you know, going into the church and how, you know, the, the story of even though you're in this incredible scenario, people are still like, well, wait a minute, don't don't cut the priests, you know, clothes. And and two of the women that I was telling the story, you like held their hands over. <gasps> Like, you know, like you, you can't cut the priest. I'm like, well, you know, I, I think in that scenario, in you that know, scenario, Father McLaughlin isn't going to care if you if you happen to cut up the, the vestibule. But... I did tell a little nice story about this. Uh, I had an aunt who died on 910, my Aunt Helen. Uh, I come from a big Irish Catholic family, and she was the shortest of all the aunts and uncles. So as your kid, all us cousins, you know, when you got as tall as Aunt Helen, you were like entering grown-up grown up <laughs> land, right? And... I go to her wake on like 912 or 913. I went right from ground zero. I shot into Brooklyn. I'm in like, you know, 5'11 pants and a NYPD polo shirt. And I'm dusty and I got my hard hat with me. And uh, I, I told everybody the story. And my cousins, someone or they paid themselves. Like a lot of times you'll see at a Catholic wake, there was a set of donated vestments, you know, at the funeral home in honor of my aunt. That's fantastic. So you my love Marilyn and my cousin Ellen sent those vestments to uh, St. Peter's. That that's oh, wow. that's okay. that yeah. that that is an incredible end. I'm not end, but yeah. you know, to, to that story to do yeah. that. Now let me ask you so, a question, Jerry. You're so, in yes. the you're in the church still, right? Um, yes. And I mean, did the day seem to you like it was ever going to end, or were you just did, what was going uh, through your head? It, I, you know. Uh, at some point, it did start to slow down to some kind of a normal pace. Certainly, it was much later in the afternoon because we had to wait out uh, the collapse. So I was in St. Peter's when the North Tower fell, by the way. I was going to okay. say, we hadn't even gotten yeah, to the second tower fallen yet, so sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. I don't even remember anything about it. Not, not a mm. thing. And there's a, a psychologist told me that's a whole uh, flight or fight thing in your brain. Uh, 
uh, my brain, I could talk about the South, the South Tower collapse for hours. The North Tower collapse, I, I, I really don't remember much about it. Uh, St. Peter's is where they did bring Father Michael Judge. I saw his picture in uh, the promo you guys put out. Yeah. Uh, I knew Father Judge. He had blessed my cop shield when I was a police officer. Uh, his rectory was in a precinct I worked in for nine years. A uh, uh, nice guy, wonderful man. He uh, was the chaplain for the fire department for years. Uh, uh, at some point, there were there, there was like a, maybe a couple hundred people in the church, and there were more medics, and there were more cops. And I was outranked by cops that were outranked me, and there were firemen and fire officers, and uh, both towers were down, and I just decided it was time to try to go make contact with my family. So I uh, wandered out at first. It, by the way, my cell phone wasn't working, and my I, wife was trying to get a hold of me. I was going to say, I mean, at, at this point, I have to imagine, you know, as an Irish Catholic myself who comes from a monstrous family, and knowing how uh, crazy and dramatic sometimes those Irish Catholics get, I have to imagine that everyone's wondering, like, where's Jerry? Is Jerry? I mean, are you alive? You know what I mean? Like, they, they probably didn't know that at that mm -hmm. point. And, you're, you're, and again, like you said, I, I, I can't imagine. I was going to ask you this, but cell phones weren't working, period, right? That The day right. it happened, they must have all just gone down. Yeah, uh, the, the system was overloaded, of course, mm -hmm. and uh, the, there were a lot of cell towers that were taken out during the collapses, right? So... Mm -hmm. uh, uh, I don't know. So I, I tried a couple pay phones that didn't, and they didn't work. And I, uh, at Canal Street, which is just a couple, a couple blocks north of the World Trade Center, there's a police station and a subway for the Transit uh, Bureau. I knew, I knew that it was there. So I, I go there and I run into this guy as I'm going into the subway station, and he's frantic about trying to find his loved one. I don't know if it was a child or a spouse or a friend. So I took his information down. I said, I'll see what I can find out. Give me your information. He gives me his card. I gave him my card, and I wrote my home phone number on the back of the card. And I said, look, when your loved, I, I, I asked, do your loved ones know you're alive? And he goes, no. I go, when your loved ones know you're alive, uh, please ask them to call my wife. And, you know, because uh, probably you can make a call from, like, Long Island or Brooklyn. You just can't make a call out of downtown Manhattan. Mm. So, uh, you know, I figured I'd get a word somehow. I, I did that with, like, two or three people, and I all called. They, they called it. Oh, that's uh, cool. When I finally got hold of my wife, she was like, how many people are going to call me? I was <laughs> like, I, I don't know, frankly. I, I, I gave out a lot of cards and there's a lot of favors. Uh, and when you left uh, the house, I, your wife uh, only knew that one plane had hit the tower at that point. No, but I actually, by this point now, uh, both towers are down. Okay. And she, uh, you know, she watched the second plane go in on TV. Mm. She saw both buildings fall. Uh, she knows I'm there because she saw me leave the house mm -hmm. and just like, you know, go blasting out of there, lights of sirens. Jerry, uh, was, there, was there any period during the time when she was unsure, like when she was like, I don't know if he's alive or dead? Did she ever tell you, like, there was a point where. Yeah, so I'll keep, I'm going to keep this, keep it together during this part of the yeah, story. I, uh, I apologize mm -hmm. if, if bringing this up. That's all right. Uh, uh, I want people to be remembered. Uh, my wife's a nurse. So a lot of cops are married to nurses, right? They, yep. they marry nurses and teachers, one or the other, it seems to be. And uh, uh, same for firefighters. So uh, my wife, Madeline, went to nursing school with uh, uh, this girl, Diane Newton. Diane married uh, Marty Egan. Uh, Marty was a captain with the fire department. Uh, great guy. Uh, handsome. Uh, Diane is beautiful. Their kids, uh, Sean and Carrie, are gorgeous. Uh, and uh, uh, 
so they're calling each other during the day. Uh, Diane will call Madeline and say, have you heard from Jerry? Madeline will say no. How about Marty? No. Uh, and then Madeline would call Diane later in the day, and they would have like a similar phone call. And then I found a phone about 2.30 in the afternoon. Yeah, maybe 2. And uh, I called Madeline. I said, I'll, I remember exactly what I said to her. I said, we're at war. I have no idea when I'm coming home. I don't know if I was going to come home for months. I swear to God, I had no clue. And uh, uh, I, 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 we have, I get direct deposit for the check, so you'll be able to pay the mortgage. Don't worry about me. I live through it. Uh, <laughs> I love you, and I'll, I'll be home soon. My wife hangs up the phone, and right after she hangs up the phone, the phone rings, and it's Diane asking about me. And so Madeline told me she thought about lying for a minute and just saying that she hadn't heard from me, but she does, she does tell Diane that uh, she spoke to me. Uh, uh, we found Marty on Friday, which was pretty good, actually, considering, uh, and like Friday night. And uh, I, you know, with my position in the police commissioner's office, I went to missing person squad, which was handling all the identifications. And uh, I said, listen, when this guy comes in, I need to know. I was on a pile and I got a call from a uh, lieutenant from the missing person squad, a great guy by the name of Dave Ebert, who did extraordinary work for months and should be on an express lane to heaven when he passes someday. And uh, uh, I just started to go home late. Uh, uh, Joy, you won't understand this, but, but, but Mark knows all, all us guys have done it. I try, I get home at like three in the morning, I try to do the ease in. Right. <laughs> I do the easing and my wife wakes right up and she says, I hope today brings news with Marty. And I go, we have news. Uh, we have news. Mm. I didn't want to tell my wife before anybody else, but that's just the way it was. And I told Matt, like, oh, look, we can't go out there now. I, I was at that point. I was really this is Saturday morning. I'm really physically exhausted, like like much further than I uh, uh uh, I I could push myself. I said I need three hours sleep, maybe four. I just you know, I got to I got to get myself together. So we went in the morning, and I uh, I I told Diane uh, the news that she was expecting, and I was able to help arrange bring bring Marty home uh, to Staten Island uh, with a very very nice police escort of New York City police, New York State police, Maryland State police, Jersey State trooper, Suffolk County sheriff. <laughs> Uh, we we uh, did the best we could to bring him home uh, with the honor and respect that he de he deserved. Uh, his kids are doing great. Uh, one went to uh, uh, Boston College. One went to Penn. Uh, very very smart kids. They're doing wonderful. Uh, uh, and Marty is missed every day by those. Yeah, I, mm. I, I, you know it's it's one of the things. Well, first, just just to, to lighten the mood a tad, because I know that, that that's a tough story mm -hmm. to tell. For you younger viewers, a payphone was back in 2001. You could take change and put it into phones located throughout cities and call people. We didn't. Not everyone had a cell phone, so when you hear Jerry <laughs> refer to going to a payphone, that's what we used to have when we were younger. So it's that's funny you yes. said that, Mark, because I was thinking the same thing. A payphone. I'm sure that Ryan, who's one of our younger engineers over here, is looking at what is a payphone. But uh, he's googling any, it right now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, one of the points I got whenever I think about you know September 11th. 
something. And every year, I, I never forget it. I always, you know, make a point to like watch. You know, the National Geographic will have something on. But um, it, it was like you know. So you're telling the story. Number one, you went through a ridiculously dramatic experience. Mm. I mean, you had a building fall on you, for lack of a better term. That's what happened. And then you, you know, you're in the church. You're helping save people, but you're losing friends. Also, you're losing colleagues. Mm. You know, the, the the departments both. Police and fire lost a ton, and you're still working. So it's it's just yeah. to me, it's it's amazing. Like you know, most people would have been like, "All right, I've had it. I'm done. Uh, you know, I can't go back." Oh, mm -hmm. which brings me I, to the next part of the story. I, I know that you and I were talking, and you didn't stop working. You, you were back down, you know, doing escorts and things like that. So I, I just wanted yeah. to. So, uh, so the next morning, uh, so I got I got I went, I got home that night about. Uh... <laughs> 3 a.m., I think. Uh, the commissioner wanted everybody to go home and get a little rest, and he wanted us all to meet in his office, I think, at 5.30. I said, all right. I decided to go home, and my plan was to uh, take a shower. Uh, I've still got all this dust on me. Uh, uh, yeah, get maybe 40 minutes of sleep, because that will help. I mean, it, uh, any sleep is helpful. Mm -hmm. I made a big mistake. I put the TV on and I, I was watching the coverage. And even though I lived it, it was compelling television. I you couldn't take your eyes off of it. It was amazing what, what you were looking at. So uh, I ended up, I woke up, holy crap, I got a shower and go to work. I never, I never slept a wink. Uh, I go back in, I end up on a, uh, I think I end up, I go right to the pile. I think I called. Maybe like John Picciano was chief of staff or the commissioner himself. I'm not sure. And I ended up going right to the pile. So I'm on a pile and uh, I'm with uh, Pete Frischer, who was the first guy to call me and tell me about the attack. Mm -hmm. And we see a flag that's kind of like draped over a, a street pole. It looks like it got blown off of a, off of a flagpole. And now it got tangled up on a light pole and it, it's upside down. It stars down. And we were over by what was left of Four World Trade Center, which was like a, maybe a, <coughs> excuse me, like a 15-story building that was part of the Trade Center complex. And uh, someone thought they heard a woman screaming for help inside the building. There, there was no woman screaming for help inside the building. Now, let's, let's be clear. But we were, we were desperate to try to find someone. So they had raised the ladder, and... Uh, uh, two firefighters, two emergency service cops, a one emergency service, and, and, a, and a rescuer from, I don't know where this person came from, and they had like a dog that they carried in like a backpack that they went up the ladder with, like they hiked up with. Mm. And everybody's quiet, and I see this flag, and I go to Pete. I go, Pete, that star is down. That's the sign of distress. I go, we're not in distress. I go, we took a punch in the face. We're not in distress. Mm. We got to get that flag off that pole before it gets photographed. So luckily, there was a fire truck from Long Island. Uh, uh, you know, by the way, the, all the suburban towns collapsed into New York City, which was, there was no mutual aid plan ever written for that. All the mutual aid plans in New York City area involved New York City going outside to help because we had all the people and all the equipment. Everybody just self-dispatched and came in, and it was a wonderful, wonderful thing, and we couldn't have survived this city without all that help. So this fire truck was almost underneath this flag. Uh, Pete, at, at risk of breaking his neck, gets the flag off the pole, we come off the truck. Uh, uh, we give it to some soldiers that were there. They fold it. Uh, we bring it back to headquarters. I end up giving it up. On, I didn't know what to do with it, frankly. I mean, it's this huge flag. It's like for an office ball. It's like 13 by 8 or something like that. 
uh, I give it to Police Commissioner Carrick. I, we write a note about how he found it. Uh, Carrick brings it over to City Hall, shows it to Giuliani, Mayor Giuliani. And uh, they end up giving it to NASA, and it flew on the space shuttle in uh, December of 2001. Oh, I see. Uh, oh, that was a so uh, it comes back, NASA gives it back on Flag Day of 2002. And on Saturday, you'll see it because every year at the start of the ceremony, it gets brought out by an honor guard of Port Authority Police, New York City Police, and Fire Department of New York. And they bring it out, and then right after it gets delivered to the stage, they do the national anthem, and then they ring a bell for the first tower getting hit, and then reading of the names begins. And... Uh, it's really an honor. Uh, I mean, I, I, I never expected any of those things to happen uh, after I after we brought it back to headquarters. Uh, all I knew is we, we got a, a flag from Ground Zero, and uh, now, nobody. That's kind of your flag now. Mm -hmm. Now every yeah. year, that's kind of your flag, right? I, it's like a, it's like my child. I go to see. I, I told you before. I, I see it every year. It's like having a kid that lives out of town, and I see it. I touch it. I see it. I touch it. It's, you know, it's, me, it's, it's our flag, you know, and, you know, it's uh, a flag that survived that day. And uh, I mean, look, the federal government thought enough of it that they put it in space. Yeah. No, and exactly. and uh, someone told me that's like huge because like every ounce, it costs like a million dollars to fly something that weighs an ounce in space. <laughs> so, you know, know that, uh, that's... yeah. So, Jerry, I, I know you and I were talking about some of the you know, the, the more emotional moments that you experienced during 9-11. And I know you told me that you had a, uh, a general fly in that you took down to ground zero. And I was wondering if you could maybe share with us the story of, for those of you who uh, don't uh, know, um, there's a movie that was out with Mel Gibson called We Were Soldiers. And it was about the life of uh, Colonel Hal Moore, specifically uh, a large uh, battle he fought in Vietnam. He, of course, went on to become a general and was quite, uh, you know, became quite famous in the military world. And Jerry, I'll let you take over from here. Yeah, sure, uh, absolutely. Uh, uh, I'm working one night and uh, I call home. I tell my wife it's a half day, you know, it's a good joke, right? Because like 10 o'clock at night, I've been working since six in the morning. Yeah. And, uh, uh, generally, I, uh, the commissioner had me going every day. I would go to Ground Zero. I'd go to the Staten Island landfill, which was the last chance place to look for uh, either either biological evidence or other physical evidence like IDs and jewelry and things. I would go to the morgue, check in there. I would check in at the family center, which was where people went to get help and aid and drop off DNA samples and stuff. So I was running around all the time. I get this call and someone says, hey, the White House called and uh, this general and his this retired general and his wife uh, have to go to Ground Zero to pay their respects to someone. All right. And I didn't know who Hal Moore was. I had seen that movie, by the way, uh, but I didn't connect it right away to give me his name. I go, they said, yeah, he's got a trench coat on and she's got a red coat. Well, there they are, right? I see them. Uh, Hello, General Moore. I'm Sergeant Kane. Hello, Mrs. Moore. Put him in a car, take him out of ground zero. Uh, you know, the street grid was like a mess in downtown Manhattan. There were like known ways to get around ground zero, and they were kind of like secret ways to get around ground zero. And I this the southwest corner of the site had this big viewing platform built by the carpenters union. And it was really uh it's the place where everybody went to go view this view the site. So 
uh, I bring General Moore there, and he tells me the story about Rick Rescola. Now I know you got you're gonna have this guy, uh, a guy from Morgan Stanley on later this week, so I'm not gonna step on that guy's story. But Rick Rescola is an American hero, and they should build like a 50 foot statue for this guy. That's all I'll say. So Rick Rescola uh, 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 had fought in that battle that you described in Vietnam with then Colonel Moore, and Colonel and General Moore was telling me what a great warrior he was. He was originally from Wales, came to, uh, was part of the British military, came here to America, joined the U.S. Army, became an American citizen. He's a great guy. And he tells, tells me how he saved like a couple thousand people on 9-11. And he did. Uh, maybe like a thousand. He might have saved like, like a thousand people, which is an extraordinary number. Absolutely. So uh, General Moore... Views the, views the site. He's just overwhelmed by the, the site. And we've all seen those pictures, and we're seeing them all this week on TV. And it was an unbelievable thing to see with your own eyes. And he gets, he stands at attention. He slowly pulls up a very, very uh, uh, crisp salute, renders it, lowers it, and then he collapses and is crying his eyes out. Crying. Crying. I had a hanky on me. I'll never forget. I give it to him. And I, I, he looks up for a second. I'm like, no, it's a clean hanky, General. It's okay, you know. <laughs> and he's apologizing. And he keeps, Sarge, I'm so sorry. And I'm like, there's nothing to be sorry about. You know, it's totally okay. So uh, while we're there, like the fire department got told that he was there also. I guess the White House called them too. And some firefighter comes along and says, are you General Moore? And they're like, hey, do you want to go in the pit? And he, he goes, I definitely would want to go down there. They, they got a gator with, you know, like a quad, right? They got a quad. Uh, they give him a hard hat and they, he goes into the pit. I stay with his wife up on the street level. And so then they come back. He's just blown away by what he saw. And while we were there, they recovered a firefighter. I, I can't remember which firefighter it was, unfortunately. Uh, they asked him if he wants to stand in the honor guard. And we've all seen those pictures. There's two rows of recovery workers, construction workers, first responders, uh, everybody takes off their helmet, puts it over their chest. The litter is brought up to the back of an ambulance. The litter is already covered with an American flag. And then the ambulance goes to the morgue. General Moore does this, comes back and tells me that it was the most moving thing he was ever a part of in his life. And I'll never forget uh, when I went home that night, I was thinking, this guy's been a part of like a thousand moving moments. Mm -hmm. And this was the most moving thing he's ever been a part of. I was really... He's no, a very I mean, nice the, man. the he's things been, that he's seen, Jerry, you know, and for him oh, to, to, to say mm -hmm, that can just mm -hmm. give you yeah. the level of emotion at the 9-11 site. But I also heard, Jerry, that you had a couple of other celebrity guests yeah. come down. And if you wanted to tell that story briefly. Sure. Uh, uh, had uh, the, the, They had a huge concert at Madison Square Garden, a concert for New York. Right. I could have gone to it. Uh, I was working. And then, like, a, again, like 11 o'clock at night, I get called and say, hey, you got to take two famous people to Ground Zero tomorrow uh, uh, at, like, 530 in the morning. Uh, one was uh, Mike Myers, uh, the comedian, and the other was uh, Meg Ryan, the actress. So I'm like, all right. So they were going to be accompanied by a, a homicide sergeant, this guy, Brian McCabe, great guy, legend in the NYPD, Brian. And... Uh, uh, I meet them at like Canal Street, which I think is where we had the uh, uh, delineation point where you had to have uh, credentials to get further south. And again, I bring them to the, the viewing platform that the Carpenters Union made for us. And they're just blown away by the site. It's one thing to see it in pictures, another thing to see it in, you know, for real, right? And uh, 
uh, Mike Morris says, hey, can we go visit the cops at the fireman? I said, sure. So it's like 5.30 in the morning. You know, everybody's like, you know, still sleep. They've been working all night, but they, you know, the, you know, if you've ever worked a graveyard shift, you know, you know, your body still doesn't adjust to it. And, uh, uh, so Meg Ryan's this beautiful Hollywood actress, you know, all the guys know they're not going to get a date out of this. So they're <laughs> just like being really polite, saying, oh, thank you for coming, Miss Ryan. It's nice to meet you. And they shake and shake her hand. Mike Myers, the guys are like grabbing their cell phones, right? And, and like making a call. And then they go to him and they'd whisper. And then he'd get on the phone and go like, and what, what were these guys doing? They were all calling their wives. And then uh, Myers would get on the phone and go like, do I make you horny, baby? <laughs> Mike. Austin Powers at September 11th. And saying, they're not saying Mike Myers is here. They're saying uh, Austin Powers is here, right? So uh, I said to him afterwards, I said, how did you know it was okay to laugh at Ground Zero? And he said that a lot of comedians can make people laugh when they want to laugh. But it, uh, he thinks he's got a gift or he was given a gift that he can make people laugh when they have to laugh. And I really, I was kind of struck by that. It's almost like comedy as a public service, right? Uh, uh, and, and I, listen, I just thought it was great what he did. And I'm sure all those guys remember it. And all those wives that got woken up at 5.30 in the morning remember it. And uh, uh, I just thought he was a, a, a nice guy. I really did. Uh, you know? All right, Jerry. So I, I, I got a couple of questions for you. Now that we got the, the gist of the story, I, I want to ask you a few ones that I think people might be, you know, curious about. So how long from after the attack did it take for you to get back to your normal NYPD life? Meaning like, was it a year, six months, five years before it was back to just, you know, no, not, no more work in relation to September 11th, just you got back to the regular routine? Uh, I went back to that probably the end of January. Uh, a new police commissioner had come in. I got cycled out of that job, and I ended up uh, uh, at a detective squad. I was at the Manhattan uh, robbery squad. And then I kind of fell into the rhythm of just regular police work, uh, you know, which is, by the way, not, there's no normal rhythm with police work, by the way. Especially it's in a New very, York very City. odd, odd career to have. But, uh, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, cases are coming in. Guys are investigating them. Uh, as a boss, I'm just there to uh, sign paperwork and sign overtime slips and sometimes go out with the guys in the field. But it's really the detectives that do all the magic work, right? And, uh, uh uh, yeah, just just got back into that probably the end of January. Oh, cool. So, Go ahead, Jerry. Oh, sorry. Um, so, Jerry, like, how how does this week personally affect you each year? That's a good question. Uh, I get sad. Uh, I cry. Uh, I cry. I cry in movies now or watching a movie all the time. Never cried watching a movie uh, before nine eleven. Now, if I'm watching a movie and even the music s- starts to sound like it's going to be a sad moment in the movie, I start. Uh, getting all choked up. Mm. Uh, uh, I'm certainly grateful that I lived. Uh, I know how lucky I am. I don't know why. I know I, I don't. I, it doesn't take over my life. I'm not like uh, you know crippled with uh, PTSD. Right. Uh, I certainly have it, uh, uh, but it, you know it's it's a it's a manageable thing. It's like you know it's like having like a bad back, right? You can get through it, right? Uh, uh, but you know, I, uh, 
You got, you got a lot of it's events like, this week, Jerry, right? Yeah. Oh, there's a lot of stuff going on. I've, obviously, for 20 years, uh, everybody is mm. mindful. Well, you know, one of the things that's 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 troublesome for us in this uh, the 9-11 community, for lack of a better phrase, is that many of us have died from 9-11 illnesses since 9-11, mm. right? So, you know, 9-11 is always, we're all, you go to a 9-11 funeral every year, even 20 years later. Every year you go to one or two or three, absolutely, uh, because someone is someone you know has passed away from a 9-11 cancer or, mm-hmm. or some other 9-11 illness. Uh, mostly cancer, though. A lot of bloodborne cancers and a lot of uh, GI-type uh, cancers. So I, I go to the, the gastroenterologist. I get all the, all the tubes shoved in all the places to check all the things and make sure I'm okay. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, uh, like if I, if I, not to be like, I'm a, you know, blase about it, but if I died tomorrow, I had 20 years with my family, 20 years. I, I, you know, that's, you know, that's pretty good. So, Mm -hmm. uh, so, so every day, you know, uh, every day is, is, uh, is, is a gift for me, a big gift. And I'm I'm really really happy to be here, uh, but but it 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 it's 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 sad. It's I mean it's sad. I mean, three thousand people had their lives snuffed out in mm. an hour, you know, uh, you know. And I was a witness to it. I was a part of it. And it's like hard to you know it's hard to I I don't know. Listen, I'm I'm glad I'm alive. I'll hug it out with a lot of people this week. That's for sure. But uh, <laughs> well, we're glad you're alive. Yes, we are. I, I'll tell you, Jerry. When I, uh, I I first, you know, when we we came up with the, the we were looking for something to do for September 11th, and I'm a I'm a big believer in never forget. And I know you and I discussed it. You know, just wanna you were telling me how you were talking to a Pearl Harbor survivor who was like, you know, just just remind people, let them know all that happens. And so, mm-hmm. never forgetting is a is a you know, a theme to this, you know, this 20 years. So when I first, with Joy and I and, and all of us here at work, we were talking about doing it. We, again, the first thing that came to head was a, a New York firefighter or a New York cop. So I, I began calling out to people to try and, you know, f- find someone that might be related. So the first person, in terms of a cop, as I called our good buddy there, Narco Nolan, Detective McSorley, and, and he, you know, he, called, he was nice enough to call me right back and say, you know, I, I got the guy for you. Uh, and, and after I started talking to you, I said to myself, if, if I was ever going to meet a stereotypical Irish Catholic New York cop, Jerry Kane has got to be, you know, right out of central casting. When I first started talking to you, the accent and all was just, you know, it, it was it was as if you are, you know, the epitome of it. And it, it, I can't thank you enough for coming on and sharing this story. Um, I do have one very important question for you that I think uh, most people uh, like to know. I like to keep things a little lighthearted at the end, and I know this is not a lighthearted subject, but as a New Yorker, Jerry, uh, and as someone who visits New York quite a bit, I do want to know, if Jerry Kane is going out to get pizza in New York, where does he go? <laughs> That's what I want to know. What's, where's well, the best New York pizza? Because I've gotten a variety of responses, and I want to... So, gonna... so, uh, so, first of all, my, my neighborhood pizza, Nino's Pizza, is a great pizzeria. But, but like, there's almost every New Yorker can sit at their neighborhood pizza is a great pizzeria. Like, if my pizzeria was in, like, any other town in America, it would be, like, the best pizza in that town. So, that said, though, like, the ones that everybody knows, right, uh, is uh, L&B Spamoni Gardens. That's the place that does the square slices 
and uh, they do the cheese underneath the sauce. That was their invention. It's family owned for like 80 years or something like that. Uh, they crank out so many square pies. It's it's like you go in there, they've got like 24 pizza ovens. That's how many pizza ovens they have. They just it's just a phenomenal thing to watch them watch them make these things. And uh, yeah, Spumoni Gardens. Spumoni, uh, Spumoni Gardens. It's, of course, it's in Brooklyn, right? So got to be. So we'll keep. Sm- I'm going to keep that on my list. But the, the other one at your hometown is Nino's. Yeah, Nino's just on Third Avenue in Bay Ridge. Uh, uh yeah you know in my neighborhood there's probably 10 great pizzerias for crying out loud it's, yeah no it's, it's, it's that's so. when i moved to florida that was the the first uh the only thing i had to get used to was that i i wasn't uh city pizza was not nearby which no, uh, not. it should have helped my weight but it hasn't but still um so jerry we're getting to the end of our hour here is is there anything any any message you want to give to you know to everybody out there just from somebody who was a part of september 11th going forward I'll just say uh, th- I, I want to thank uh, all our military uh, for I've carried they carried the fight for 20 years. Uh, and when, you know when a, when a, a fight starts on a cop's post, he wants to finish it, right? Uh, that's just the way it is. And uh, because of the nature of this beast, uh, the military had to had to do the job for us, and uh, they did a phenomenal job. Uh, and, uh, you know, every time I'm at a bar and there's a man or woman in uniform, they always get a cocktail from me, always. And uh, that'll be the, the way I carry myself to the day I die. I appreciate all their efforts. They fought for 20 years. It wasn't easy. And I, I just want them all to know that uh, me and probably all my brother and sister cops are, are grateful for what they've done. Absolutely yes. no. Here we we couldn't agree with you yeah, more on that, and it was a, it, it the twenty year fight afterwards was is just as crazy as well as the day itself. But Jerry, I'm gonna let you run because I know you have uh, a very long week. I want to thank you so 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 much for coming to share your story. Yeah. Uh, it is an incredible story, and again, Jerry, we're very happy you made it. I know your family's happy you made it. The people of New York are happy you made it, and to all you New York cops out there. Thanks for September 11th, especially all you firefighters also and, and all the first responders down there. Um, I know this is not a week to, to, to say congratulations or anything, but I, I hope you have a week, kid. That's what we would say from Boston, Jerry, from a Bostonian to a New Yorker. It was an honor to have you, Jerry. Thank you so much. Thank all right, Jerry, listen, you have a good week. For everybody else, tomorrow we continue our September 11th series. We have a New York attorney who was working that day across the street from World Trade Center 7, John Renahan, who is going to come on. We, we have a lot of Irish Catholics this week on the show, Jerry. I don't know why that is, but I, I had to get guests last second. But once again, we have with us today retired Detective Sergeant from the NYPD, Jerry Kane, joining us. Thank you all for tuning in, Jerry. Once again, thanks so thank much, you. brother. And I hope you have a great week doing what you do. And uh, please say thank you to everyone from the NYPD and NYFD that you're running to. I will do. All right, Jerry. Talk to you soon, brother. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you all, for, everybody. Uh, joining our podcast today and tune in tomorrow. 3 p.m. We'll see you tomorrow, 3 p.m. Eastern. Thank you. It's very, very blind. If you look at some of the gals on Fox.